Hello, my name is Eileen, and I am the host of the Along Came Bitcoin podcast. I am here to have conversations with women in and around the Bitcoin space and to learn from their experiences. Welcome to the conversation. Today, I have the pleasure of sharing a conversation with Kiara Bickers, author of Bitcoin Clarity, a book that answers what is Bitcoin and why is it important? Kiara has written this book to be a guide for beginners to understand the complexity of Bitcoin with a bit more clarity. Welcome to our conversation. Hi. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So today we have um, Kiara Bickers, who is the author of Bitcoin Clarity. And I'd actually like to turn it over to you, to Kiara, to introduce yourself and give a little background about where you are. And Yeah. So, man, long story, short story, but um, depending on how long you want this to go. So I guess, yeah, my name's Kiara. I wrote this book, Bitcoin Clarity. That's sort of one of the more recent things I've done. Um, I started off in Bitcoin, or I should say I was interested in Bitcoin back in like 2012, um, because of this like Ron Paul guy that I had heard talking about things. I was quite young at the time. So um, yeah, I, I didn't know much about really anything, but I was listening to Ron Paul and I heard about oh, libertarianism and Bitcoin. And uh, I, I mean, I started working in the space in 2015 and yeah, gosh, it's, it's been a long journey since then. So where are you from originally? Are you, were you kind of born and raised? you in the state oh yeah um going so all the way back so i was born and raised in san bruno so it's like a smaller town outside of um san francisco and did you live in california your whole life or go to school there um so my mom and my dad are both not exactly from there so um like my dad was born in spain and my mom was born in the philippines but um yeah, we had family that in California. So we lived, I lived there for the majority of my life. Um, I lived in Utah for a bit. I lived in New York as an adult. And then I live in Texas now, um, Illinois too. We talked about that a little bit before we got on this, before we started the podcast. But um, yeah, I've lived all over, but I grew up in California for sure. And then at what point, I know you said, I guess Bitcoin came along for you when you were with 2012 and was that when you were just first hearing about it or how did you you kind of how did it so I was, your... yeah I was a little bit of a weird um I don't know if it, if it if it was like really noticeable as a teenager but like late in my teens I started like reading these like old history books and studying economics like in my side time and my mom thought this was so bizarre because I really wasn't a good student um I was like a D and F student. So like really not good, <laughs> but I would carry around these like thick 16th, like century sort of like, you know, books about the 16th and 15th century, or I'd read like stuff about um, like, yeah, I would just read like the, the oldest books that I could about money. Um, so I wasn't really interested in like the VC world and the Silicon Valley, but I was interested in like the history of money and the ethics of money and like how capitalism started. And that put um, some conversations between like li- like the libertarians on my map because they had this, you know, if you, well, libertarians actually talk about economics, let's put it that way. <laughs> right. 
And then the politics is just sort of like a way that I got access to the economics. What I was really interested in was like the ethics of money, I think, if I had to be pressed on the subject at the time. And I was probably like, yeah, I was probably like 19 or, or 17 when I started reading these these types of books. And then I, I think, I don't know the numbers exactly, but it was like, I had just graduated high school when Bitcoin was created. And I, yeah, it was... It, it was sort of on my radar, but I definitely thought it was a joke in the same way like people think like Dogecoin is a joke, which it actually is. <laughs> so. so then you you're learning about, I guess, Bitcoin and it and what it is, even though it's potentially a joke, but it sounds like it, it it's at least making you think about money maybe a different way or um, how things are. I think, yeah, it was just like um, it just crossed my radar. Like I didn't go into a deep dive on Bitcoin until several years later so like when bitcoin was fresh on the scene the ecosystem was so 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 different that in order to learn about it there weren't as many resources um there's certain like today there's like you know 20 different books and there's movies and there's like documentaries and then there's like bitcoin twitter but it really wasn't like that then it was like only people who knew how to code really understood it and Although I appreciated it from an economic angle, I did not have the technical chops to like really play with it. And anytime I would ask someone like, hey, like, how do you think, like, have you heard of Bitcoin? Should I learn more about Bitcoin? Now, like fast forwarding to like from finishing high school to like mid-college age, um, a lot of the people who I would talk to about this who actually knew anything about Bitcoin were all developers. Like they were like, you know, engineering students at whatever university they were going to. And they'd be like, oh, you want to learn about Bitcoin? You should learn how to code. And that that was really the, um, that phrase, learn how to code, was really the motivation that started why I wanted to write that book, Bitcoin Clarity. But um, basically, yeah, this, um, this, this statement that obviously meant well was like, oh, yeah, you should just passively learn how to code, ended up being like maybe more than three years of my life I spent trying to learn how to code. Wow. In a non-productive way is how I would phrase it, like, um, well, so there's a, a number of different ways you can sort of approach learning how to code, right? You can go to university and if you go to university, they'll, you'll learn a lot, but you'll learn a lot over a long span of time. Um, you know, you'll learn how to, you, you'll learn like how to write certain, like you'll learn about binary trees, you'll learn about, uh, compilers and you'll take a whole semester course on, on, on like major topics. And then at the end, like you might know something productive, um, but I didn't really have the time for that. So I was thinking, okay, how do I expedite this? So I would, I tried to take like these boot camps, and I was like, mm, this still isn't exactly right. And the pr approach that I took was, um, well, okay. One more approach is you could pick a language and you could just try and learn that whole language. And that's actually pretty useful. You because mean like you Cobalt or C++ or something? To that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Once you learn one language, you can very easily read others and like you kind of know others and then you could, you know, it, it'll just make it faster to learn the next one. Um, but for me, I also didn't have the patience for that. So like maybe ADHD is like on my radar, but um, I would just try and do things like from a project-based perspective. So I was like, okay, um, let's say I don't know the Bitcoin, but I want to learn about like HD keys, which is like how the, how keys work underneath the hood of Bitcoin. And really no one needs to know how that works unless you're building a wallet. Um, and even if you're building a wallet now, there are libraries that handle that. But 
I digress. So that was what I wanted to learn. So I would like pick a project that would put me in a position where I had to learn that concept. And then I would just learn everything I needed to learn in order to build that. And that, that worked pretty well, but then you're never really an expert. You're sort of more of like a project hacker, you know? So, um, but it worked. I like, um, so back in, back in the day, uh, the app store would not allow Bitcoin wallets as of yet. So yeah, it was, it was a big deal. I, I bet the price pumped, but I honestly don't even remember. I remember where I was when I heard the news that like, oh, the app store is going to allow Bitcoin wallets. This is huge. Um, <laughs> but I built uh, like the first paper wallet. So I was, I was trying to think about security for people who don't know what paper wallets are. It's basically like um, the idea is instead of, instead of like generating your mnemonic through, um, well, that's not actually true. I should say, really, I just wanted to build a wallet that didn't touch the internet. And there are ways that you can do that, obviously, now with hardware wallets. But at the time, I don't know if hardware wallets, is, they might have. But yeah, I, I wanted to make a paper wallet because I think it was easier for me to understand. And the whole purpose was to learn anyway. So I built I like it. the first paper wallet for the App Store. That was a fun project, but quick question for you, just for mm -hmm. people who might not be familiar with paper wallet versus hardware wallet. What is the difference between those two? Yeah. So, um, well, the purpose of both is security. So when you generate a wallet, that's like on an exchange, you're not in control of those private keys. So really like when you're saying like, how do I control my private keys? Two of the things you might look at on hardware wallets or paper wallets. And um, with the hardware wallet, like uh, a ledger or a treasure, you have this separate device from your computer that's connected to the internet, right? Like we're talking on the internet right now. So we probably wouldn't want to generate a private key on here because that would be insecure because the internet is. Um, but yeah, the hardware wallet allows you to generate a private key on a device that's never touched the internet. And the paper wallet, the way that I had done it, and gosh, I, I honestly haven't made a paper wallet since then. So it's been so long. But um, yeah, paper wallets were hot back then. I don't, I don't know what it was, but it's basically the same thing. You generate a wallet on a device that hasn't touched the internet and then you print it out. Okay. And yeah, and then instead of storing it on that device, you just, you just print it. You're back to the paper and that you then have to put somewhere safe so that you yes. ideally know where it is. But I- Exactly. And what was actually interesting about that is um, the private key would print as a QR code which is like, no one's really used to that. And yeah. it was like, ooh, I was like, this is annoying because then I had to find an actual wallet provider that would support my private key QR code scan. And like, it was a huge headache. So anyway, that was like, yeah, the, the trying to make wallets that are uh, compatible with other wallets, like trying to make a mnemonic that you can generate in one wallet and then have it be compatible on another was actually like a huge headache. And um, I learned a lot in the process and it was, it was really fun, but that was just something like I hacked together. And then uh, I think it was after that. No, it definitely was after that. I was still trying to work with HD keys and like, you know, I actually went to like the Thomas Edison museum once and everything he ever invented looked like a light bulb. And I made that comment to, to the tour guide. And I was like, well, you know, when you, when you get it right once, you just kind of roll with it. And it's like, we think of these great geniuses in the past, but like when you actually go to the museum, you're like, oh, this was like, this guy had one solution and he was just trying to fix everything with that one solution. 
And I think it took him what a thousand tries, or I don't remember how he tries. Exactly. One solution. Sometimes I feel like that. So I had like figured out HD keys, and I was like, let's use HD keys for something else. And like, um, I had come up with this scheme to like repurpose the the type of cryptography and the like. It's not even cryptography. The the type of derivation structure for keys in Bitcoin to selectively enclose and I guess disclose identity so it's like the way that I envisioned it is if you had you know your ID and you're at a bar because I was also young so that was on the top of my mind but (laughs) if you're showing your ID at a bar I was like okay well why should I have to show my name if if all they need to know is my age like surely there there should be a way to prove that I'm over 21 without having to show them my address and although the bar is maybe not the perfect scenario for where you'd want to disclose identity you know we always get asked for like if you're in america you get asked for your social security card like every time you go to like the dentist and it's just completely unreasonable right so i was trying to think of a a, a scheme to do this using um hd keys and and it, it it definitely worked but would i have said it was the best solution no and and uh, I called it like blockchain me and I did a hackathon with Coinbase and it placed in the hackathon. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Won some Bitcoin. But was actually really concerning to me is like, I, I, I presented the thing in the Silicon Valley and then like investors at the time, because Bitcoin was so new, were like approaching me, trying to get me to turn it into a startup. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay, that's... um that's odd and that was really like having grown up in the bay area this was really my first interaction with the silicon valley it's like here's this project that i hacked together that is definitely not secure and is not the best way to do it Ta-da! and they're like you should start a company how do i give you money <laughs> you know? yeah you're like no this i was just curious curious and i was putting my energy into a project to solve my curiosity and yeah. Exactly. You're like, no, I don't think this should be a company, but actually someone else turned it into a company. And um, I just Googled it the other day to see if it still existed. And sure enough, it does. And they've completely pivoted to be about how to prove that you got the COVID vaccine. And I'm like, oh. wow. So, <laughs> That's quite a pivot. <laughs> it's a bit dark. You know, when you, ha- when you have VC funds, you got to keep rolling. You got to keep rolling with it. <laughs> Follow the money. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. But working in the identity space on like trying to fit, how, how do I put this? Trying to put uh, identity on a blockchain was was something that I tried for over a year. Um, I ended up contracting with another company who like wanted a consultant that um, could, ex- could could do this. And they, they their use case was the UN. So they had like all these people in, you know, developing countries that didn't have identities and like, oh, we'll put it on a blockchain. And then I would go to these meetings and it was like, I grew up relatively poor. And the people at these meetings were like, you know, like probably like top level executives at NASDAQ. So it was like a, a culture shock to say the least. And it, this was, when, this was in New York. So it was definitely a culture shock. Um, and I started to learn like how the business side of things actually worked. Cause I was like, okay, like these people don't actually care what technology they're putting it on. They care if they can impress their like wife's dad, who's like richer than them. Got it. And it was, um, yeah, it was a bizarre experience. So I, I tried to get out of that world basically as fast as possible, like hit the eject button. And uh, that was when I got a job at Blockstream. So I met, uh, I met a, I met a colleague of mine 
uh, up. Well, I met him in the Silicon Valley when I was doing the presentation about identity in the blockchain. Uh, we, we met a few times in New York and then he insisted that I be the first intern at Blockstream and just sort of like made it happen, which was a, which was a great deal for me. So I, I started off as an intern there. And for people who don't know, like the culture at Blockstream, Blockstream is like a, it's like a big, a big Bitcoin company. If you're on Bitcoin Twitter, I would feel like that's, that's kind of where it's at. Um, but years ago, developers on Bitcoin didn't get paid because it's open source code. So like it wasn't really anyone's responsibility to pay them. And what Blockstream wanted to do is it wanted to basically become a consulting company, a mining company, a wallet company. They wanted to just monetize their knowledge in the space. And then they hired a lot of the people who are publicly contributing to Bitcoin for free and like actually paid them. Uh, yeah, it was a really great deal. Um, but then it was like, it all it took was like one year and then everyone was sort of rich who had <laughs> at least, you know, people who had invested early. So then the payment sort of became redundant, I think. But um, that's that was really the goal of what what started the company in my mind. And th there was a there's a product called Liquid that's a side chain, but that's sort of a side thing. Side chain is a side thing. It's kind of funny. Um, the reason why most people, especially me, wanting to work there, I think, is because it had hired some of the best people in the space, and it was just a cool place to work. And are you still working there today? I still work there today. Oh, okay. How many employees are work there? We've kind of hovered at about 50. Okay. And you came in as an intern and now you're, um, you've been there for how many years? I've been there for five. Wow. That's, yeah, that's impressive in this space. Um, it seems like there's, there's a lot of maybe moving around and a little more volatility than in. Oh, that's definitely true. They have a very good incentive program. They uh, like to keep people. <laughs> <laughs> so what made you decide to, to write Bitcoin Clarity, um, the complete beginner's guide to understanding uh, what spawned that idea. Yeah. Paper wallets and, you know, projects on uh, identity. Um, yeah. So I got, I got slapped pretty hard when I started working at Blockstream because I think the guy who brought me into the company was um, more of like, more of like a conference man. You know, he would go to conferences, he'd meet people. And the developers were a little bit more antisocial than that. So I don't think they were really, I don't think they loved the idea of me as an intern, if I'm going to be honest. They're like, oh, great. Like someone around the office is just going to bug us. And they were nice to me, but that was the impression that I got. And um, I remember I did an introduction my first day and I was like, yeah, to learn more about Bitcoin. What I did years ago is I like, I cloned Bitcoin and then I created Kia coin. And then I like built this paper wallet. And I remember like no one was impressed and everyone was like, all of the libraries that you're using are insecure. And they were like wrecked me on security. And I was like, okay, great. Thanks guys. I was like immediately pulled wallet from app store. And I was like, I learned a lot though, because I learned, um, I learned about security at the same level that the devs were speaking about it. And that was just like day one. So like day two, I've mentioned this before in other podcasts, but I worked under the chief security officer once they hired me full time. And uh, one of the things that he had me do was just like lock picking. So for like two weeks, I was picking locks and then like I, physical I, locks, like you physical locks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He had me read this book about um, uh, these bank robbers who would look at the security of buildings and then attempt to break in. And then, you know, the, the idea was that this would map back onto network security. 
And it did. It makes a lot of sense, actually, because it's like a lot of people spend a lot of time making a secure door when their when their wall is still made out of two by four and can be trivially drilled through. And that was really the idea. And like, um, yeah, he no longer works with the company, but he was like the chief. I think he was the chief security effort at MySpace as well. Like he was he was like definitely top top security guy in the industry. And I learned a lot working under him. And um, as I started working in the company more and they, I was, um, I, I, I think I, I came in a little naive because um, my understanding of Bitcoin was really focused on economics first. And secondary to that, I had somewhat learned how to code, but I was nowhere near the level of like a protocol cryptographer. You know, so it was like, yeah. So I was very humble in that and I was like willing to learn and, and I assumed that they were right and I was wrong in every instance that they would correct me. <laughs> and I, I learned so much about like different libraries, uh, cryptography itself, just the ways that people think about code, security, like I could just go on and on, adversarial thinking. And um, after a couple of years, um, I was talking to a few uh, different, one, one guy was a core dev who had sort of just like tuned out because he had made money and now he's just playing video games all day when you say core dev what do you mean by core dev for people yeah so um because bitcoin is open source um there's there's a there's an implementation of it but there's there's multiple different implementations of it and one of them is called bitcoin core and we say that that implementation is really upstream from the other ones because the other implementations typically well, not even typically, they, they sort of have to re-implement what is first done in Bitcoin Core. And when you run Bitcoin Core, what you're running is a full node that then like validates the network. And if you have a different implementation of Bitcoin Core, which is like, um, let's say like Bitcoin B or something, like a, something that's written in a different language, that's something that sometimes developers will run instead, um, it has to be as close to an implementation of that first of, of Core itself Otherwise, it'll cause a split in the chain. Okay. So like, because it's a, because the blockchain is synchronized as all the nodes need to be on the same chain, all the implementations need to be more or less the same, um, which you really, it's, it's, that's a separate conversation. But yeah, when we say Bitcoin core, we say they're a developer that's contributing to the Bitcoin core repo. Um, and there's a lot of like clout, developer clout associated with that because it's a pretty, um, meritocratic environment so like if you can offer something valuable then then you're a developer and if you can't like you're not in that group you know right. um, but anyone who can contribute is welcome to contribute it's just um yeah it's just it, it, it's um i guess it's more of just a reputation thing like people who have found vulnerabilities in bitcoin and have found ways to silently disclose it and to fix it are like are, are considered contributors and have contributed to bitcoin so that that's what i mean when i say that but um yeah, so one guy was a Bitcoin core dev, um, meaning that he was like an open source contributor to this code. Um, and another one was like a security researcher who had basically written proposals for Bitcoin and he did that anonymously, yada, yada, yada. And um, they were both extremely knowledgeable about Bitcoin, but um, they were not impressed with the existing books that that had been written. And they were saying, you know, like, look, like all these technical books that, that have been written for Bitcoin are intended for developers, but developers actually never read them because like developers just read the code. Right, right, okay. 
And then the people who end up reading the developer books are also not developers, but th that was the only book that was really commercially available. So um, they're like, yeah, all these books are, are not meant for the audience that is actually consuming them and is probably confusing them and not doing them any good. And then, you know, I, I was, I just kind of volunteered. I was like, oh, maybe I'll write a better one. And they're like, that's cool. You should do that. And um, over the course of that weekend that we were hanging out, um, I just like sketched out a, an outline, which I thought was probably the most valuable part of the whole thing, because it's like actually figuring out how you want to get someone. My goal in writing the book was getting someone who really didn't know how Bitcoin worked or, or what Bitcoin was to any degree, and then get them all the way to understanding opcodes. And my thought was, if I can get them to understand opcodes, then they can follow developer conversations on their own without uh, without having to just search for someone's opinion on the conversation. So that's a pretty lofty goal. Um, I have to be honest, <laughs> sitting down and sketching that out on a piece of paper or napkin and over the weekend um, to, to go from trying to take somebody who's novice or you know new to the space and translate so much of what's there really simplify it. I don't like using the word dumbing down because I, that's not how I view it. I view it as just simplifying the language so that it's easier to translate and then you can start having conversations. But until you start tra that right. translation, you can't even really be part of the conversation because there's a hundred percent. There's too much of a gap. And like one of the things that I noticed, this was back in 2017 when I was sketching this out was like, I would go and people would talk about Bitcoin all the time, like especially in Silicon Valley, like people talked about Bitcoin. It wasn't a secret, you know, people it, 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 it had hit cultural awareness at that point, but nobody actually knew what it was. So like, but they would think that they knew. Right. So they'd be like, oh, Bitcoin is this and Bitcoin is that. And I'm going to put this on a blockchain. But like they would make fundamental misunderstandings of like what the blockchain can do. Um, like really the blockchain, like why is the blockchain trusted? people didn't actually understand that word or, and they would misuse it. And then people didn't understand like what the point of decentralization was. They would just sort of, they'd hear an explanation on Bitcoin through tone, through tone or whatever it was, they would understand that decentralization was good, but they didn't understand like why it was good. And if you press them on certain issues, like they wouldn't be able to tell you, right? Like, um, so that was pretty obvious to me at the time. And one of the things that I wanted to do in like the very first chapter is get people to understand like what it meant to be trustless. And yeah, that is kind of like that, that is actually kind of tricky. And what helped me do it was I didn't want to do it how anyone else had done it because I feel, um, you know, you want to interview more of like the women in the space. And I feel like a lot of the books had been written by men and, you know, that's totally fine. Like nothing against that, but I think men have a, a, a tendency to think more analytically. So like, going and taking going into a system and like taking it apart uh, when I would see like how-to guides that were written by people in this space uh, it would just go from like it would go from like zero to a hundred it'd be like this is bitcoin and this is how you decode your private keys into a binary mm -hmm. and I'm like how is that helpful you know? yes, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm pretty sure that everyone who wanted to understand bitcoin who was an analytical thinker already understands it and now if we want to expand into a new audience, we need to find a new way to explain it that can reach people who weren't, who weren't satisfied by the, those other explanations. And I think you, you've nailed it on the head with this, even to the point of, you know, in that very first chapter, 
you really break down some of this really simple things, um, just recognizing there's a difference between Bitcoin with a capital B and Bitcoin with a lowercase b. And I'm pretty sure most people don't understand the difference between those. But I feel like just planting that seed at the very beginning, you're giving your readers almost like a, a little cue or a little inside signal to say, if you can see this word with a capital B and know it means the blockchain, if you see the lowercase b and you're recognizing, you know, that your Bitcoin that's in your wallet, you're, you're just giving them really fundamental information that then makes it easier for every time they read Bitcoin or they hear Bitcoin or they hear someone talking about it. So I, I think um, while they may seem um, maybe too simple, I personally think that the, the way that you've done it, it really gives it that clarity that you were you were hoping for. So I, I, I appreciate the effort you've done there. Cause I've had a challenge of trying to find that right book to be able mm-hmm. to share with those that I are asking questions about how can I learn more? How can I study more on this and not having it either goes financial side with goes into the whole history of money or it goes, you know, too technical. And I think this is a nice um, middle ground between those two areas. I'm glad you say that. I would say when I was writing it, I was aware that it's possible to go too technical. And I don't know if I mentioned it outright, but my thought was if people want to skip certain chapters, I wanted to make it so that the beginning chapters were the simplest and that maybe by three or four, you could skip it and move on to the next section. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> yeah. And, and, but then you can come back around towards the end and say, okay, now where do you get started and how do you actually take some action on this and right and and just some of the mindset all all those different aspects of it um so it was really fun to write yeah I I can how long did it take you to to write it probably a whole year okay and then do you I mean did you have people who didn't know anything about bitcoin that you were handing sections to saying can you read this and tell me if it (laughs) actually no I didn't do that so um it was quite the opposite. So like one of the things that I was doing was just like, I, I'm pretty good at knowing like what's an assumption and what's not. And like some people just aren't. So like, you know, I'll enter like business conversations and people will just be using their industry lingo without any indication of like what the acronyms are. And I'm like, um, excuse me, like, I don't actually know what that means because like you're using like, how would I know what that three-letter acronym means? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so, but people just do that. They're kind of an autopilot, right? But my brain, I do try and simplify things and I can tell what's an assumption. So I would just try and break down every single assumption and then actually spell it out before moving on to the next thing. Um, and it was really helpful to have like all of these resources in the Bitcoin space that were trying to explain Bitcoin. And I would just intentionally try and do it differently. So like the way that like private keys are explained, a lot of the time, the Byzantine general problem is the way that that's talked about. The man in the middle attack, which really is just, that's the way everyone explains it. So I was like, okay, how do I explain it? Not that way. <laughs> and then I, you know, because I did the lock picking stuff, I was like, oh yeah, like Bitcoin is really just like locks and everyone knows what a lock is. So like, I'll just use that. And um, I think that worked really well. Uh, what and was your another? visuals, I mean, they're, they're still simple sketches, but where you just, you're taking a box and you're putting one lock on it and then you're passing it over to someone, they put a lock on it. And they, now that you have explained your lock picking history, I can see where that 
you know, kind of is <laughs> a way to explain things because everybody understands that, right? Everyone exactly walks up to a house and opens their door or their car. Or some there's a lock somewhere, so that's that's um, universal. It is universal, and it's like it's so much less intimidating. Yes, when you just think about cryptography as complicated math locks, but ultimately, yeah, they're very similar and. I mean, gosh, I had such a fun time writing the book. And one of the things that I, I didn't want to do is almost all of the explanations that exist on Bitcoin and most of the books that use visuals to any degree, they repurpose the images that are in the BIPs. So like a lot of people that I talk to who read the book, they love the governance chapter. And I'm like, that's surprising because it wasn't my favorite chapter to write. Like it was just, like, you know, you always think it's the thing that you like writing that people end up liking themselves, but no, everyone likes the, the governance chapter. And in that chapter, I talk about what a BIP is. It's just like a, it's just a Bitcoin improvement proposal. And oh gosh, um, gosh, what was I saying? I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, I was talking about the, the improvement protocol. Oh, I, I remember that everyone was using the same sketches for everything that came out of those BIPs. So like when someone, when a core dev makes a proposal to BIP, uh, to, to Bitcoin, they they write out the proposal and then that'll usually include some like images that'll help actually like help implement what it is they're trying to improve in Bitcoin. And then people who are not the developers of Bitcoin, people who are trying to create educational material, when they search HD keys, they find the image that was sourced in the original BIP. And like, that's cool, but that image was meant for developers and like actually probably isn't the audience that you're trying to address. And no one really took the time to just like re-sketch everything in a way that made more sense. So um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Ryan Holiday, but this guy talked about his writing uh, style and he talked about using note cards and just like writing on note cards. And then after he spent a year writing on note cards, he would organize them. And that's how the book would get laid out. Oh, and I liked that a lot. So anytime for a for before I started writing the book, even anytime I would hear something about Bitcoin that I thought was complicated, I would do my best effort to sketch it out visually in a way that made sense to me. And then I would just file it away as a note card. And then once I compiled like all of the note cards that I felt were, were, were needed for the first book, um, I was just kind of like looking around for an illustrator and I went to my local coffee shop when I was living in Chicago and this guy had these beautiful like hand-drawn sketches. It was just like in pencil of scenery. And I was like, that's the guy and like, <laughs> found his number on his art, like called him. And I was like, so like, do you want to do this, like this Bitcoin project with me? And he's like, yeah, that sounds amazing. So he sketched everything. He basically took all of my sketches and then redid them. And we must've worked together for like over two months because my sketches were just awful. And then he'd be like, what exactly are you, what do you mean <laughs> by this? About this. <laughs> <laughs> They're more like doodles, right? It's like a madman illustration. There'd be like five different concepts on one, on one note card. He's like, uh, I don't really know what this is. And yeah, so, but it was a fun process. And I, I just loved writing and I love communicating in, in a way that like, to me, gosh, how do I put this? If you look at the, the crypto ecosystem, Bitcoin values a number of different things and uh, security is one, but simplicity is another. And I, I quote this guy, I quote a guy um, in one of the chapters of the book, gosh, um, he's been out of the space for so long, but um, he's the guy who made the dark wallet. Let's see if I could find it. 
Red dart wallet. So yeah, I never got up. Just curious, is your um, sketcher, um, your artist, was he into Bitcoin before this? And no, he wasn't. Is he into it he now? <laughs> I'm not so sure. I think he said it was his favorite project that he worked on. So he he definitely loved it. But I don't know if he's like into Bitcoin or if it was too technical for him. Um, he's real. You know, artists are artists are a different breed. It's really, it's really difficult to monetize your creativity. So I think he was just excited to get paid to do, to do doodles. Um, okay. So yeah, his name's Amir. Amir was one of the like early core devs in the space. And he had made this dark wallet and uh, he, he, such a brilliant guy. And he ended up leaving, he ended up abandoning his dark wallet project to go like fight ISIS in Syria. <laughs> um, super interesting guy. And um what was the thing with him? So he, he, when he first found Bitcoin, he was like, this is stupid. And like, he, he was like, this code looks like it was written by a five-year-old. And then after looking into it for like a year, he was like, oh my God, this is actually brilliant. And what I, he misunderstood that there was, there was a brilliance and simplicity. So like, if you're trying to look at the Bitcoin source code now, it's extremely complicated, but um, there's actually like, if you Google like Bitcoin original source code, the original source code was like one file. And it was extremely easy and simple to understand. And I think there's just so many layers, right, that that were baked into that one file. Like the idea of the time chain, the idea of synchronizing all these full nodes, like there's so many concepts that were just so made so simple in the first version of, of Bitcoin that, I mean, even down to the opcodes, because the op, like, the, yeah, B basically, the more that you learn about the code, the more that you realize, wow, this is an extremely simple system. And that's part of what makes it so beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I actually thought about instead of naming the book Bitcoin Clarity, I thought about naming it like Bitcoin, the value of beauty, because the way that developers talk about the system is that it's like this, this really delicate but somehow robust, like anti-fragile was a popular term before they turned on the person who created that <laughs> um, uh, before he became like a, a non-Bitcoiner. But yeah, anti-fragile is a good term too. And um, yeah, that's how uh, that's how I think about it. I love I loved writing the book. I love sketching out the visuals. And now I'm shifting gears because I, I talking about the book is one thing, but just writing was so much more fun. And I, I'd like to write another book called Crypto Chaos. And that would be about more like, you know, everyone who reads Bitcoin Clarity, who's new to the space, they always want to know about alternatives and like learn more about the ecosystem. And I myself am learning because I stopped, I basically tuned out of Ethereum at a certain point and like learning about that. It's a totally different model. Uh, it's definitely not simplicity, but it is something. <laughs> when people ask you how to, to describe the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin, what is your simplified version of that well from an economic perspective ethereum's not scarce so that's a big one um and then from like a from a, like a utility perspective well the scarcity of bitcoin is sort of what drives its utility mm -hmm. like people want to hoard bitcoin right um for for ethereum it's quite different it's the value of ethereum is that it's the plumbing for the entire entire ecosystem. So, you know, if you want to build and it, if you want to build an ICO, if you want to build a token, if you want like they, that all happens on top of Ethereum. And one of the things that's sort of the sad reality is if you want to build a cryptocurrency, 
and then get it accepted at an exchange, that process could easily take even just even not even the building of it, just getting it accepted at an exchange could take two to three months for them to do a proper security review on it and then feel that safe enough to list it. Um, but if you launch an ERC-20 token, well, then they can list it almost immediately. And then the process sh is shortened to like two weeks. Oh, I see. So there's an incentive to get to market faster. To Exactly, exactly. But like get to market with what, right? Like right. a token is just a representation of value. It's what, what I would say turned me off to the, what made me stop thinking about Ethereum for a long time is like, I really didn't understand the concept of tokens because it's like, well, in Bitcoin, you can't just like mint and burn tokens at will. Like there's 21 million and it's fixed and that that's what gives it its value. But what I didn't quite understand is there's there's value in investors being able to make their own tokens, basically to speculate, mm -hmm. especially in a market like this where everything's super frothy and like there's all this free money floating around and any... I, I work, uh, I consult with a, a group of investors and the investors are uh, very different than the developers. I'll say that. Um, but one of the sayings that they have is like anywhere that there's volatility, there'll be investors trying to profit off of it. And like the Ethereum ecosystem just has a tremendous amount of volatility that people can profit off of because it's like, it's just all speculation. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Like your VCs when you first started with your paper wallet, it, and your, you know. A different group, like these ones don't wear blazers, but yeah, pretty close. Okay. <laughs> but speaking of volatility, um, I mean, we're talking today, it's May 20th. Um, the last few days, uh, last month, there's been a lot of volatility um, this last week in particular. Uh, just curious how you kind of help, how you process that and maybe how you address it with others as it comes up. Yeah, so gosh, like when I actually started buying Bitcoin, like I remember, I remember volatility was going from a thousand to 600. So like, this isn't new. Um, it doesn't scare me or anyway, like it actually just doesn't affect me. I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't get excited when we hit all night new all-time highs and it, I don't get depressed when they're low. So like, I'm just so neutral. It doesn't affect me. Um, but I do have a number of people, like I call it in the book, like the hype panic cycle and like, there's always a new wave of people that are brought in by a hype cycle, even if they don't consciously registered as that, like how many different people that I knew that were interested in Bitcoin, but didn't actually have the guts to buy until the price was like 50,000. Right. And it, it's just part of it is they don't know, they don't feel confident in their decision. Like we can all understand that. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely better to buy when people are crying and, but that's not how it works. Generally speaking, like most people buy in when everyone's excited because it's like FOMO, the fear of missing out. Right. So, um, there are a number of people who text me and they're like, this is the first time I've ever bought Bitcoin and it's less than what I bought it at. And I'm like, you should be excited and buy more, you know, <laughs> like, not financial advice. Right. I mean, that's what all the industries are doing. So I think, I think, uh, this hype cycle is extremely different because What's happening here is like, you know, there's a saying in the space, it's so funny where they say like diamond hands are paper hands and like the paper hands are like the people who sell and the diamond hands are the people who buy like, okay, whatever, whatever, that's a meme. But at the end of the day, people who have fear now are going to sell and it's going to be institutions that buy. Mm -hmm. And the institutions are going to buy in bulk at a discount, which is why we had that flash crash from you know, what was it? 50,000 all the way down to, to 30. Mm -hmm. And then it bounced right back up to 40. So it's like, 
it, it's happening so quick. And, you know, people have different theories on this. Like I was talking to one guy and he's like, we're going into a bear market. It's dead. It's dead. And I'm like, it, it doesn't, unless you're a trader, it doesn't really bother you. I agree. Yeah. And I think, and I think you, you mentioned that kind of early on or why, you know, what is people come to it for different reasons, whether as, you know, are you making an investment? Are you a trader? Are you, you know, here for the ecosystem of Bitcoin and, and what it means? There's lots of different personalities, I think, in the space too, who have different motives and different um, yeah. inspiration. I think most people want to make money. And for me, like, yeah, I want to make money, but uh, the, the motive, I never thought the price would get this high. Never, ever, ever, like not in my lifetime, did I think the price would get this high this quickly. So to me, like Bitcoin has already tremendously over exceeded my expectations. Uh, like I, I'm just interested, I'm interested in complex systems and trying to understand them. <laughs> like I'm just compelled to, to things like this and trying to understand things and make them simpler. And um, I've sort of like, when I started at Blockstream, I was an intern and then I, I worked as a sysadmin and I think now I'm kind of becoming more of a product person because like, I just, I, I like to make complex things simple mm -hmm. and that's, uh, that's kind of what a product person does. So I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited about the different opportunities in the space that exist. Like I was yesterday, I was on the phone with a guy about like tax minimizing strategies. And then after the call, um, cause I was consulting with him, he's like, Hey, I don't want to charge you for this, but like, let's talk after. And then he tells me his idea that he wants to put something on a blockchain. And it's like, it, it was so funny because he actually understood what he was talking about. And he's like, yeah, and this is how we're going to cut out the title companies. I was like, whoa, it's like the, the people in the space are getting so much more educated now that I have more confidence that like cooler things are going to get built because it's not like 2017 where no one understood things. It's like now people understand the purpose of the blockchain is really to reduce middlemen in a lot of ways. And people get that now. People understand the risks of private keys. Yeah, I don't know how many more years people are going to, like journalists are going to be able to get away with Bitcoin's dead or like, you know, some some millionaire lost their private keys and now they're not a millionaire anymore. Like people aren't really moved by those stories anymore, which is a sign of changing times, I think. I agree. So your next book, you said you, what, what's the thought behind that in your simplifying in a yeah. So I don't know when this will actually be done, but I haven't even really started other than I'm just sort of like in a, a data gathering phase. Like I just collect little data points, sketch things out. But I always thought that B Bitcoin clarity and crypto chaos would definitely go together. And um, the idea for crypto chaos is to basically do the same thing I did for Bitcoin, but for the crypto ecosystem at large. Okay. Okay. Uh, yep. So I want to explain like, one of the things is like the history of all the different cryptocurrencies and how, you know, everything old is new again. Like if you were in the 2017 hype wave, like you'll remember ICOs, almost no one talks about ICOs anymore. Now they do like EDOs and like now we're in an NFT like hype wave and every single hype wave comes with its own um, speculative asset that is named something different. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, if, if you're going to try and document all of them, it's going to be a very long book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I would have to update it every year. So I'll have to find a way to say, okay, and that's enough. I think three examples is good. Yeah. You just keep an eye out for this metric. But yeah, like people trying to assign value to an to a unit that they control is 
probably the is is probably the is how you can boil it down to simplest terms. And I do think there's value for doing that for especially people who are newer to the conversation and trying to wrap their head around things. Um, Because I do think there are, you know, like the Bitcoin Twitter space, it can be a little intense. And I think, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) um, It's not a good place necessarily for people to start out because you almost have to come in. And and it's, I, I, I don't, there's no ill will there. It's, I think it's a defense mechanism more than anything of, you know, having been in the space and maybe having to keep explaining something over and over again. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's probably a point of frustration. Um, but I think in, in order to, like you said, if you have a new audience, you have a new community of people you're trying to talk to, there has to be some ways to share that information and for them to gain, you know, knowledge on their own and to learn and then be able to kind of test the waters themselves and, and experience it. Um, you know, I think yeah. back to the quote, um, and you have it in your book here, uh, the, um, the Satoshi Nakamoto quote where he said, or she said, if you don't believe me or don't get it, I don't have the time to try to convince you. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so I, I would just it. like to compliment you on taking the time to um, convince someone or at least explain to someone with some clarity to the Bitcoin conversation. And I do think it has real value. So I, I I want to thank you um, for the work that you've done and, and encourage you to keep writing and speaking and sharing because I think it there is a need for it in this space. And of course, the fact that you're a woman doing this just makes me even more giddy about it, excited. Oh, I love it. Thank you. And I appreciate you taking the time to do the podcast. And, you know, when we come to this, when I think when people come to Bitcoin, they want to find a way to contribute and participate because it is like a real community. Yes. Yeah, it is. And I, I've never done a podcast before in my life. I have, you know, a day job. This is, this is kind of my side gig and it's not something I'm even compensated for, but it's that need or that want to give back to the space. And if you see a void or you see, I just wanted to have more female voices in the conversations. Cause that's something I saw a, a need for, for myself. Um, and, and in turn, I'm meeting all these, you know, amazing women who are doing such incredible work and it's very inspiring to be around. And, and so I feel like I'm, I'm kind of getting an inside track to some pretty amazing people. So I feel, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what else comes from you. Um, and, uh, hopefully we can connect more in the future and I'd love to hear more about what's going on in your space and your, your world. So it sounds good. You know, I hope, uh, I, well, I don't know. Are you planning on joining a Bitcoin 2020? I am. Yes. 2021. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I forgot the 2020. Uh, yes. I'm going to that as well. So maybe I'll, I'll catch you there. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Kara, it was great talking to you and I look forward to hearing more from you and have a beautiful Bitcoin day. You too. You have a great one. Bye. Bye. Grateful to have the opportunity to share this conversation with Kiara Bickers with you. She can be found on Twitter at Kiara Bickers. And you can also find her at her website, getbitcoinclarity.com, where you can find access to her book, as well as other tutorials and information she's put together to share her knowledge with beginners and help them have more clarity around Bitcoin.
And anyone looking to connect with me can reach me at alongcamebitcoin at gmail.com or my Twitter handle is at wise <clears throat> underscore wake. Always looking to have more in the conversation in and around Bitcoin. <laughs>